Hi, everybody. I'm Jessica Minhas, and this is the Algo First Podcast. In addition to being your host, I'm also the founder and CEO of Algo First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health and wellness, hope, healing, freedom, all the things. When you become the caretaker of your caretaker in life, your life really changes a lot. Ruth Reader is a journalist and New York Times published author, and today she walks us through what her processes look like taking care of both of her parents, along with a new career, along with newly getting married. We explore what it means to reparent ourselves after loss and how to honor our healing. Ruth is so honest and vulnerable in this conversation. I think you're really going to be inspired as well. Hi, I'm Jessica Minhas, and welcome to I'll Go First. I am joined by my very, very dear friend and sort of neighbor, Ruth Reeder. She is a journalist for Fast Company. She has been published in the New York Times, and she has an amazing, powerful story. She's deeply passionate about health advocacy and health equity and technology and how to scale health. So thank you so much for coming. What an all this intro. Way. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, all this way from Tribeca. From, from Tribeca. <laughs> that is where Fast Company is located. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. I yeah. felt like they'd be in Wall Street for some reason. I mean, it's close. Well, so for Algo First, we're all about courage and sharing each other's stories and how to and how tos from from our journeys. And what really inspired me about your just process, we've had a lot of conversations around taking care of parents mm. and what a challenge that is. I know in my case, I haven't shared this on the podcast yet, but in, and you know this, but in my case, I took care of my grandfather. Sort of, I tried. Yeah. And There's a lot of trying involved. There is in this, and um, it was really hard. He was also an alcoholic, which complicated everything. And it was kind of like I was in a domestic abuse situation because my it was just my grandfather and I, so I was kind of like his wife in this weird way. Mm, yeah. It's, well, right, because you become sort of enmeshed, enmeshed, triangulated, mm-hmm. pa- parentified. I think. Parent. Definitely, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> Adultified. Yeah, before that moment for you, probably. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, yeah. What can you say? Like, you're really passionate about um, health care and, and health policy, and I know a little bit about your personal story, so I'm coming in to the podcast knowing a lot of information. But do you mind sharing just a little bit about what kind of drives your passion for that, and how in the world did we get here? So my story is long, so we're not going to tell all of it. But I will say my mom also was an alcoholic, so was my father. But my mother got cancer when I was – well, she had it twice, but the second time, and I was 25 years old. And I had to make a really crazy decision, which was, you know, do I go home and take care of her? And it was hard because we had a really fraught relationship. I mean, she was a, she was not only an alcoholic, but she also suffered from bipolar disorder. And it was a complicated one. She didn't get her meds right. I mean, it, to no fault of her own, you know, her doctor and she just couldn't find the right combination. It probably wasn't helped by the fact that she was drinking. But she, you know, so she was a very complicated person to interact with. And we didn't have a good relationship at all. So, and I was 25, you know, I had left home, I had sort of gotten away from the, like, from all of the chaos 
of alcoholic parents. Because both your parents yeah, growing up were alcoholics. Yeah. And wow. they, yeah, and they were weird. They sort of like operated independently of each other. She sort of like was raging in one corner, and my father would like be asleep on the couch in like another room. It was just a very weird sort of childhood. And so you didn't really have anyone that like protected you from the other. When I was really young, my dad did, but he, when I turned 12, he started drinking. Just a switch. Kind of, yeah. I think he he had always drank. He always, you know, every so often he'd have a beer. But he, but he like, went full-blown, like, deep alcoholism when I turned 12. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like it – I mean, just watching your face right now, it just seems like it almost was like a night and day just switch. It kind of was, and it was a betrayal uh, for me with my dad because we were very close. And so when he started drinking all the time, it, it – yeah it felt like a real betrayal he was no longer able to protect me you know I did a lot of protecting myself throughout my years but he was always sort of a little bit of a buffer and then he could no longer be a buffer uh after that point so So you kind of lost him at that age yeah and we yeah it was very yeah we I mean we just it was like we broke up (laughs) do you know what I mean yeah yeah Wow. Crazy. And then it was – then you didn't have your dad to – in in the same way. And also he was no longer protecting you. Right. And I mean there's a lot more to it. I mean later he moved out and and so he was physically not there. He remarried when I was in college. But yeah. What was the house kind of like once he kind of tapped out? What was the house like? I mean it was just my mother. I mean so it was more – in some ways, it was more of the same because he was sleeping all the time. Like, <laughs> you know, he was very non uh, – what's the word? He was very absent. Like, even when he was physically there, he was passed out. So it's not like he was doing anything. He neither added to the chaos nor sort of took away from it. He was sort of in his own world, drunk, asleep, you know, just literally conked out. And my mom – had a lot of ups and downs emotionally, just like always on the roller coaster, a lot of rage, a lot of deep sadness, and a lot of hospital visits because she was getting drunk so frequently and she was falling. And she already had, you know, she sustained a head injury from falling, which is really not uncommon <laughs> at all. It's in fact yeah. like a lot of head injuries are what the ER deals with from alcohol or not from alcoholics, but from like addicts and abusers. So so she had a head injury. I It was a lot of me taking care of her. Like when she would get out of the hospital, I'd come home from school at lunch and like And how feed old are her. you at this point? Probably – I forget when my dad left. I think probably I was 16 or 17. And you have a younger brother. And I have a younger brother. And so where is he at this point? Are you – you're also taking care of him? To a certain extent. I mean I had help. I had like a – Network of friends. He had a great network of friends, a lot of friends' families that would, like, take him to – because he played sports in in both middle and high school. And so because other parents were going to the games, they would make sure that he got there and, like, get him home and sometimes let him sleep over at their house and that sort of thing. So when he was home, though, yeah, I would, like, help him with his homework and make sure he ate and that sort of thing. And your mom – she is working. She's not working, like, in this process. She stopped working when I was 
12, I want to say. She basically, it's really funny. So she was, she had a, she was a terrible alcoholic, as we know. I mean, she was drinking in the morning before she went into work. She worked as a financial analyst. And, um, and she was drunk when she would get home. So I, I can't even imagine, like, as an adult now, I have no idea what her days were like, but they were uh, wild. I can only imagine. And she, so she, so how it went down was that she lost the one job because of her alcoholism. She was working at a small investment bank and then and then she got this big job on the investor relations team at Viacom that was very big wow. it, yeah yeah and she and they actually she she got fired maybe for performance who knows but i mean she got swept up in the merger between CBS and Viacom the first go i think that was in 97 or 98 and when that happened she got fired with a bunch of other people like her boss got fired you know what i mean so after that because she had a she had a contract with them yeah she was living off of that for the next ever wow okay so she didn't go back after Mm-mm. that point she thought about it yeah i think she wanted to but she was like really messed up did she I have mean, a sense that like her alcoholism was out of control or that like she she was obviously going to doctors she was. Yeah. She was. I mean, she had to take during her last job. She had to take six months off, and she was in a psych ward. She was like in a closed psych ward. At that point, you're at college already. No, I was eleven. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I was. I was like in the sixth grade or something. Wow. Anyway, this is getting too deep. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that. Wow, eleven. Uh, yeah. I wish we were around each other to hang out like these adultified 11-year-olds. <laughs> My grandmother passed when I was nine, yeah. so that's when I became the lady of the house. Spam yeah. dinners and canned green pea uh, Let beans. me just say, shout out to Lean Cuisine. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> I, that and like Weight Watchers meals – Girl, let me tell you, because let me I I didn't know how to cook, but I could walk to the grocery store. You know what I mean? <laughs> I could take like a few dollars and buy a frozen dinner. I'm just trying to imagine <laughs> imagine petite little Ruth oh going God. to get mine was um mine was the Idaho potatoes that you added water oh, to. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you remember? Oh yeah. We the other thing we would have in my house that I would make that was so easy were those like instant rices do you know what i'm talking about oh man i wish i had those because otherwise it was like spam man mainly Mm. old lunchables we didn't have did we have meat we might have had some deli meat (laughs) (laughs) it's weird because in my house my grandfather you know was he i found out recently worked for the state department during his career so it was interesting being with him as a kid and not having the means to go get, like, real food, even though our house Mm. was, like, full of all these items from his travels and stuff. So you are – well, just let's just skip to the part where you're in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're giving up your entire life. (laughs) (laughs) So I have – no, I'm not even in college, so I'm an adult woman. You know, so I've had this rot relationship with my mother where I'm, like, taking care of her, right, and then I leave – while I'm in college, she is frequently calling me and asking me for money and, you know, other things. She's, like, telling me that her heat is going to be shut off, that she can't pay the electric bill. 
And we all, we always fought. We just like could not stop fighting. I could not stop fighting with this woman. And she could not really get better. Yeah, that must have been really hard. Right. I mean, it's so hard and it's so complicated. And I don't – and I didn't as a young person appreciate her mental illness at all. Well, did you really – I mean, you're so young. I knew because – I knew mostly because I was aware of the diagnosis. I don't remember who told me. Probably my dad. He was always like very cavalier with that sort of information. <laughs> but – just very blunt about like everything. I was thinking about this this morning because uh, I don't remember why, but I just I remember like before my brother was born, my mom had a miscarriage, and my dad was like, "Ruthie, your mother's sad because she had a miscarriage." I'm like four years. Old. Oh my goodness, you remember that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Is that stupid? Anyway, no, it's not. But the ways that we scar children. I'm just yeah. like taking notes. So I don't think I was scarred by it. It's just like where I remember. I was like, oh, a miscarriage. I should find out what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so complicated relationship. So we hadn't been talking for a while. I had like sort of come to visit her during her first round of cancer. And then a couple years later, she got hit with the second one. And at the same time, I'd gotten out of a relationship that was very hard for me. And so we had kind of recently reconnected because I had reached out to her in like a moment of pain and she had answered the phone and like said all the right things, which was like highly unusual. It was like, honestly, this is why people believe in God. I am an atheist, just full disclosure, but like I can understand because you're just like, how? <laughs> like This was like a beacon of hope It suddenly. was. It was like, where, how? Like, oh my gosh, are you going to be my mom now? Are you going to be my mom now? Wild. That's so exciting. But she said all the right things, and I was like, this is what I need to hear. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Just oh my tell gosh, me that he's terrible and that I should be <laughs> laughing and not crying my eyes out. And she did, and it was fine, and I did laugh because she can be quite charming. <laughs> but um, so so then I had – so I had found out about the cancer. She told me – or probably actually my dad told me, even though they divorced, he somehow knew this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> families you know <laughs> and so I, I had found out we we were celebrating her birthday it was like a few months later and I was in her house um and we were talking and then all of a sudden it was just very apparent that something was very wrong like her words started to slur in the moment in the moment just like out of nowhere and like her brain just like completely twitched or something. Wow. And she had recently told me that, oh, my God, I'm, like, not drinking right now. Like, you know, I'm amazing. I don't even want to drink. And I and I was like, that's so suspect and scary. And then when she, like, ha- and I was like, I kind of wonder whether her body is having a reaction because of the cancer and that it's just, like, no, like, no We're poison, done. thank you. We're no done. toxins. <laughs> So, yeah, so when she had that sort of, like, brain slowdown, I got really freaked out. And I was like, oh, my God, she might die. Like, maybe she's dying. And that obviously stirred up all sorts of emotions for me. So what I – Complex. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, like, parents can be so sucky. You know, we're all human. We all make massive mistakes. We're all subject to illness and mental illness and all these things. And, like, no one's perfect. But that's my mother. Do you know what I mean? I know. I mean, at the end of the day, like, it's always going to be – I mean, I know even with my parents, 
now I'm just like, oh, it's going to be amazing one day when you come around. And meanwhile, I'm 36 and I'm like, don't worry. I'm still holding my breath. Oh, my God. Indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. I Up until my early 20s, I was like, my parents are going to – they have the potential to get better. They could get better. Right. But it was just no. That is not true. Yeah. Um, same, same. Especially with my grandfather because he was drinking so much uh, as well. And, you know, very verbally abusive, physically abusive. And even like every mo- – almost every morning I'd be like, today is the day. I'm going to come home and know he's going to be drunk – but maybe he won't be, and maybe I will be able to tell him about what happened at school and just be normal. Yes, completely. Oh, my God. And I had this ray of hope when my mother, like, answered the phone that yeah. one time. And yeah, was like, of course. But then – so then I tried to, like, turn it into a real relationship, and I was like, you should come and visit me. I know. It doesn't I that seem so – it seems like – been there. So, it seems so, so minor. There. But I was like, yeah, just, like, come down here. I, like, booked her bus tickets and everything, or train tickets. I don't even remember what I paid for. But I paid for something for her to come down. And you know she bailed. Because she had this wow. – she freaked. She was like, I uh, I have to get my life together this weekend, so actually I can't. I can't so we're going to get the entire the whole, 40 plus years of life yeah, just, done we're in 48 gonna, hours. Mm-hmm, yep, this weekend. I wish it was that easy. Ugh, 48 hours. So <laughs> much can happen. Be amazing. <laughs> and there were multiple moments yeah. like these where it was just like, you know, I just want us to have a normal relationship. And I just – it was not possible. It was not possible yeah. for us. I had to accept the relationship as how did, it was. How do you accept that? I mean, that is so hard. What does accepting that look like? How does it look like for you? For me, I'm still working on it. It's a lot of swallowing of expectation and getting used to, like, not normal. Like, the biggest – I think the biggest challenge I've had as an adult human being – and I don't know what normal even is, so, like, whatever. But, like – Whatever ideas I have ingrained in my brain from society or television or whatever I read, like whatever my idea based on like social inputs of being normal are, I have had to completely dispense with that and just like accept that I'm never going to have whatever that is. It's not related to me. I'm, I'm, I have to come up with an entirely new paradigm that is based on my existing realities and that is it. I was talking with my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Let me rephrase that. I was in therapy Mm -hmm. um, two weeks ago, and we were talking about my self-talk, how I talk to myself. Mm. And I think I've been trying to piece together, like, you know, education was my ticket out of my situation. So that meant that I was the overachiever, like, straight A's. And anytime I came home, it was, like, you know, mm-hmm. never good enough for acknowledgement. And, you know, typically my grandfather would say something like, oh, you think you're a big shot now. And it's so creepy. Even when I say that to myself, I get like chills because I can like feel it on my back. So s- success has always been like kind of scary because like accomplishing something then means like this backlash mm-hmm. where almost like success feels bad. But I still want it because I want to prove myself. And also that was like the way that I got out of my situation. But I was talking with my therapist about like how to reparent myself. Ooh. Like, Tell me about that. How do I become the parent that I don't have? <laughs> Especially when it comes to encouragement. You know, like, oh, my gosh, Ruth, you got published in the New York Times. That's amazing. But actually, like, feeling amazing about it rather Mm -hmm. than being like, oh, yeah, but – or, like, 
yeah, but I'm not going to let my celebrate myself celebrate that much. And so like my, I guess my self-talk even with like work stuff has been like, you got to get this done. And she's like, how about other words? Like what other words could you use? And I'm like, I don't even know what words are an option. She's like, maybe you could say you did a great job. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know. Like I don't even <laughs> have like a map, mm-hmm. like a dictionary of suggestions of what good parents say to their children whom they love. Yes. I feel you on all of this. It actually reminds me of something that I did this year that was really weird. So get re- get ready for like, <laughs> I don't know, really like hippy-dippy Ruth therapy. Ruth is dancing right now, if you could see her. <laughs> I did a group hypnotism uh, oh, tell me. session. Yeah. And I... I highly recommend. Okay, everybody has. <laughs> I'm, I'm like feeling judged before I say anything, but whatever. See, is that whose whose voice is that? I don't know. <laughs> but um, so what this woman did was it was like very cla- classic uh, hypnotherapy, from what I understand. I don't know a ton about hypnotherapy, but essentially, she like counts you backwards into this like hypnotic state, and then basically what she does is she has you visualize your child self. Okay. And then and then you're kind of in this weirdo dream state. And so then you kind of like let your brain figure out like what happens next. So like does your does your inner child like come towards you? Does it run away? Does it do something else? I don't know. And in my case, my inner child is kind of doing great. Amazing. (laughs) She's thriving, apparently. So that was (laughs) that's great. That was cool for me. I was like, thank God she's fine. Do you like your inner child? Oh yeah, she's rad. I cried during the session. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's it was wild. Because I do like my inner child. She was cool and precocious and like had a bowl cut. Did she really have (laughs) (laughs) I feel like maybe you should try that again? Oh no. Mm. No, I had it. We I don't ha- live in Bushwick, so Mm-mm, no, no. I I rocked that for That's far too many. That you years. liked your inner child. I did some inner child work, and I was like, no, no, thank you. You annoy me. And so in therapy, we're working through that right now too. Yeah, it's like actually having compassion for myself. Well, I think so. Back to your parenting thing. I think that can be a really helpful tool because so I've been like. My husband and I joke that I'll, like, get in touch with my inner child to, like, see what's going on with her. You know what I mean? That's great. But it sort of gives you an opportunity from a visual perspective, like, whether or not you buy into whatever, I don't know. But, like, what it does is it lets you sort of, like, visualize your younger self and then you get to take care – you get to physically take care of that younger version of you and, like, hang out with younger you and, like, maybe read you a story. I don't know. Or just touch base for five minutes. You know what I mean? What what about that experience made you cry? Oh, my God. I think I cried in part because I was relieved that I was fine. Wow. So so there was that. And then the other part was – this is way sadder – The other reason I cried was because I realized that adult me was doing the same stuff to younger me that my mom did to younger me. Heavy. What kind of stuff? Mostly just neglecting. Just like being too busy with everything else to like like check in with myself, to like make sure I'm being taken care of, to like make sure I'm happy. All that stuff. Just kind of ignoring her. Wow. Just ignoring 
that sort of like base self. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was doing it in the same ways. Wow. That's kind of creepy. Yeah. I mean, just to recognize the sort of duality with it. Isn't it weird how like um, as adults, I think any of us have to reparent ourselves. But in my case, yeah, I definitely reparented myself as a shitty parent that I got parented (laughs) by. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're bad parents to ourselves. (laughs) Well, we didn't really have good examples. We really didn't. I was talking to – I was talking – to some no fine I was talking to you <laughs> uh-huh we were talking we were at my dear friend Colin O'Brady's celebration oh, he had yeah. just like crossed Antarctica as you do by himself in 54 days <laughs> breaking I th- Colin if you're listening I don't even remember how many world records you've broken I think it's seven and he's so lovely and so sweet and so encouraging. All of these things. Genuine. Like, like, very genuine. Very lovely. So genuine. <laughs> when you talk to him, he is just like exuding love and encouragement and like this, you got this vibe. Yeah. It's so sweet and so lovely. And I walked out of there feeling kind of bad about myself. <laughs> and we walked into a wine bar. Yeah. And you looked at me and we had we had not even said a word from leaving outside of me expressing my severe social anxiety right and you said wow he must have had parents that really loved him yeah <laughs> which I stand by I stand by too <laughs> and I, think- I was like that person their parents really love them and you can tell it shows but I feel that way about a lot of people who have like my husband Gio his parents like obviously loved him he just like walks like I don't know what. He's just like this little golden child. He just, you know, does and has no fears and like. I think it's interesting how in my situation, not having parents made me feel like, well, I have nothing to lose. So I'm just going to go for it because at this point, what else can I do? But at the same time, when I see, you know, people like Colin who came from such a loving home who are also able to just go do stuff, but it's a different vibe. He's so open, you know, like it feels like if you have a home base to come back to, there's like a different sense of I think freedom. He, he literally said that, I think, during his talk. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a complicated thing because on the one hand, yeah, I totally felt that way too when I was younger. I was like, whatever, my parents are trash, but like I can do whatever I want. I'm free. <laughs> Right? Teenage me. But at the same time, and, like, I have no responsibilities. I have no obligations to these people, though I did, obviously, which we're going to get back to. But I felt like I didn't. But it's a lie. You Like, everyone is in some way obligated to the, their family. And even if they're not, you probably feel some guilt about it at some point. It's true. It's true. Or yeah. some feelings. You might – you're going to feel a type of way about yeah. your family. Yeah. Even with my grandfather, you know, taking care of him – Again, that was such a mess that I'm unpacking right now (laughs) in therapy. When I think back about that time, like I I gave up my college scholarship to stay in my hometown and take care of him because no one else was going to be there to do it. And despite how ugly he had gotten, you know, there was definitely the obligatory part of me that was like, uh, absolutely by no means am I leaving him by himself. Like, no matter what, I'm going to stay here and take care of him, obviously. Like, even if he was alive now, he'd be... 94, I think, and if he hadn't passed, I'd 100% still be in my hometown right by his side. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's true. Like, in, and in my case with my mom, like, when I saw her starting to deteriorate, I was like, I can't let this woman die in this house alone. I know that she's a lot. And I know that living together is a fraught experience for us because, as I said, we fight a lot. And it's, like, nasty, also nonsensical fighting. <laughs> but And then there was also that feeling like, will I regret not spending this time with her before she dies? Because I don't, you know, I don't know. You just don't know. You just don't know what you don't know. And, like, I don't know that I was really looking for any kind of closure from it. I just felt like I should be there. Yeah. And so you moved back. I moved in with her, which was, whew. <laughs> and that's when you were 25, bringing us back. That's when I was to 25. where we started. You were 25 when you moved in with her. Yeah. And at that point, what, what stage was she at? I actually don't know. She yeah. had cancer. Yeah. We were not actively talking about stages. Her doctor was very much trying to keep her positive. And so we talked about it in terms of treatment and how we're treating it and, like, we're going to get this. I mean, to the point where the day, like, I think it was the day that I brought her in because she had gone septic. Oh, wow. Her oncologist was like, we're going to fix her up. We're going to get her out of there. We're going to get her treated. She's going to she's gonna beat this. You know, he was really trying to uh, get her – back and I understand and I understand that I mean there is a lot to be said for like the psychology of sort of like happiness when it comes to cancer and health it wasn't always a realistic approach but whatever so are you feeling that when he was saying this I mean um, at this point you've you've had like kind of you've been sort of definitely neglected as a kid and your parent your dad pieced out for his own stuff he had his own stuff and then your mom was going through stuff so you were kind of by your, by yourself most of childhood mm-hmm. and then you left you went to university and now suddenly you're back taking care of your mom who is dying yeah and also mentally ill and also well at this point she's not drinking but she's definitely still very mentally ill so so, yeah, so I move in. There's all sorts of, like, rules off the bat. It was very fraught. And I, so going in, I so I knew it was going to be bad going in. Like, I knew that if I made this decision, it was not a decision I made lightly, first of all. I wasn't like, yeah, I've got to move home. I didn't really initially think I was going to move home, to be honest. I weighed it carefully because I had a career or what I thought was the beginning of a career. And I had a life. I had friends. I had a lot going on. I didn't want to sacrifice everything that I had built just to go back home to take care of my mother. So I sort of did it very carefully. I my I was lucky in that my job at the time had an office in New York and I, I, I'm very ballsy sometimes. I told them, I basically told them that I was going to go work out of the New York office and I did it in such a way by emailing multiple bosses at once that they couldn't say no. Yeah. Because I was telling them that I was moving to the New York office to take care of my mother who was dying of cancer. But because I included, like, the top, top people who I knew were, like, kind of nice, I was like, there's no way they're going to say no to this. And then the underlings can't say no once the top, top boss approves Strategy. Always go to the top. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew I was not going to stop 
going to work. And that worked for me. I don't think it works for everybody. But that worked for me because I needed to be able to get out of the house. I needed to not be there all the time. That because she's stressful and maybe I am also stressful when I'm with her. So I did that. I moved home and I knew I was going to be like on my best behavior. I was like going to be my most self-aware self. That was the goal. And I was not going to yell at her and I was going to try my damnedest to not give into old, very ingrained behaviors. And so I like really had to like center. And I also did that by like making sure I had – like I – set up an appointment with my old therapist in my old town and I was like, I'm going to need to be seeing you now. Yeah, so you really strategized. I really did. I was like, I know this is going to be hard. I do want to be here, but I need to be able to take care of myself in this moment because – Look also, at you parenting yourself. Look at me. <laughs> and then I had friends who were there and I made sure that I was like sometimes going out and I wasn't going to be like a slave to my mother even though I was also taking care of her. So I did all those things things and it was really hard the as soon as I got there there were rules I was not allowed to cook okay so I could not cook in the house who's feeding you then you both how are you both eating I ate out a lot how what did she you bought food for her she ate oranges and apples and the occasional smoothie I think that's it she really wasn't eating I mean she's so nauseous from the right that makes sense from the meds that's really hard so she's so nauseous she doesn't want me cooking because the smell makes her sick. Right. That makes so sense. So there's reasons for it, but she yeah. was like so aggro about it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, fine. I'm not like who, – who am I to argue with you? So I didn't argue with her. But then there were like other things. So I brought my dog with me. I remember I went – you know, honestly, I think it was like my first or second week at work. And she would call me. I don't know even – did I give her my office number? I don't know, but that was a mistake because she would call me on my office line and she would just call and scream at me and tell me to go home. She'd be like, I don't want you here. I never asked you to be here. You need to take your dog with you. He's barking at me. Like, you have to go. This Like, this is over. All this stuff. And she would just call. And then I would hang up on her and then she would call and she would call and she would call and my phone is ringing off the hook and then I just have to take it off the cradle. <laughs> I can see your face right now. I wish that listeners could see your face because I can <sighs> feel the tension. Wow. Like I think that that is just so hard to take care of somebody who is a really difficult person and who has really not been there. Yeah. So she does this thing. Then I go home that day. And I'm obviously very angry at her. (laughs) But I'm like, I'm not going to get angry at her. I'm going to walk in there. We're going to have a conversation. All these plans that you made. I really did. I planned. Moving home. But honestly, I really think that the planning is key for this stuff. You you cannot go in blind or you will die. You will (laughs) die on an emotional stake of your own making. Don't do it. (laughs) You really need to plan. So I went in and I was like – and she's like – now she's like in a great mood. and She's like watching TV. She's like, it's fine. I fixed the problem. Just like, you know, buy me some dog treats basically that I can give your dog. And I was like, okay. That's fine. I, I can do that. I was like, but you can't call me at work anymore. And you can't yell at me at work. How did that go over? 
she wasn't she didn't say anything and then she was like fine <laughs> and she didn't wow okay we like i basically started to just quietly calmly establish some boundaries with her like there was another time where i was like you can't talk to me that way <laughs> just like i'm not going to or like she would start to try and like push me into argument She'd, like, want me to argue with her and, like, get me to this, like, insane level that, honestly, I hope no one ever sees me at again because it's, like, ugh. But she, you know, she eggs on. And so I'd be, like, I'm too old to do this with you. I'm not doing this with you. And and then I would, like, set a boundary. I'd be, like, we can only, like, if you need something from me, ask me for it. We will do it. Ask me for it calmly. Do not scream at me don't call at me to scream at me just ask so what i'm hearing you say is that like for would you say for for people who are listening right now who are in that process of taking care of a loved one who is not so easy to take care of some things that i heard you mention were creating boundaries you really set up a plan for yourself too when you moved back yeah i really i cannot recommend enough just like before you even if you're already living with that person, just like whether you're at work or you're out somewhere else, maybe go to a coffee shop, maybe go to the library if you can't afford a coffee and just sit down, take like five minutes and just like think for a minute and say like, how can I enter a situation with this person when things get bad in a way that both of us won't end up screaming at each other? Because really, it seems like you're doing it for them, but really you are doing it for yourself because you need to protect your sanity. So it was like you said some key things that when you moved home, you had an already established relationship with a mental health practitioner. Yes, I did. It doesn't have to be a practitioner, but somebody who you can – A social worker. Go to. Somebody. I'm so glad you just said that, but also someone who can maybe help navigate the healthcare system. Oh, Yeah. If that's possible. Ugh, I wish I had that. Ga- navigating the healthcare system is so impossible. It's impossible, but there are patient advocates out out there now. We actually just had someone on the show earlier who is a patient advocate and was talking about, like, there are these concierge services now. But regardless, like, building mm-hmm. a relationship with your loved one's care team and making sure that you're on the same page with them. You said you had gotten, like, really connected with friends while you were home. Oh, yeah, I did. like, a community to spend time with a dog. I mean, <laughs> well, my dog came with me. So yeah, my, dogs right, can exactly. be so helpful. Dogs, yeah, having a dog was great. I will say this also. So another another complicated factor or thing in taking care of yourself is sort of like how much time you spend with your loved one versus like taking care of yourself and making sure you get space. It is hard to figure out that balance, and sometimes you're going to feel like you're messing it up, and sometimes you're going to feel like maybe you're not giving enough attention to your loved one and maybe you're focusing too much on yourself but it will go back and forth sometimes you'll feel like you're focusing too much on them and not giving enough attention to yourself and you kind of have to just like be as easy with that as you can like go easy on yourself try not to like get upset because I definitely there were definitely times when I feel like I booked time with my friends that I shouldn't have like sometimes I just like not because I could have known just like things would come up and I and I should have just canceled my plans with my friends for example 
or vice versa. <laughs> you know what I mean? But maybe my friends weren't available when I was available. So, it, you know, it becomes difficult. But you sort of have to just, like, let yourself go with it and, like, do your best. Yeah, for sure. I am thinking back about my time with my grandfather and have been really struggling recently because I feel really guilty for not being at home that much. I think everybody's hands were kind of tied in my situation. Nobody really knew how to intervene. And I was 17 and he was almost 80, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was really sick. He was an alcoholic. He also had been half paralyzed. He had broken his hip. He needed 24-7 care, but he refused it. And he would kick all of the nursing aides out. Like I remember one month, 13 aides rotated from the hospital and just nobody wanted to be around him. One aide stole our car. And like when I came home, the car was missing. I was like, where's the car? He's like, I don't know. It'll come back and just ignored me. And then a few days later, it showed up. And when I asked him, when I mentioned that the car had come home, he was like, yeah, I knew it would. (laughs) So (laughs) it was was a disaster. But I look back now with some hindsight and I can see like that how sick he was he was just kind of starving himself he didn't eat and he was just like Mm -hmm. kind of a bag of bones and I have been really struggling not beating myself up over feeling feeling like it's my fault that like he kind of in his own way starved himself to death and wanting to not feel complicit in it but I was so young and I just couldn't be at home he was so mean so that's an area that I'm kind of reconciling myself through how much was my stuff how much was his stuff and then trying to have sobriety around it being like I was a teenager I need to keep that in mind I was by myself as trying to survive high school on top of that so yeah that's a really good point is to try and build a capacity and space for yourself with a lot of grace and compassion yeah around that situation absolutely and I should also say like I think in my situation I got a little lucky because my mom did respond not all the time obviously and sometimes I did have to walk away but that's the thing it's like you have to be able to walk away from a situation step out of the house make space for yourself like it's not always going to resolve perfectly you should try not to get into like altercations but yeah just like take a breath (laughs) there's a lot there there's so much there I know you're super passionate about mental health and health access, and I saw a tweet that you made recently Mm -hmm. about San Francisco and homelessness, and you said something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, but Uh we should care just as much about mental health access as we do homelessness, and I always say in my my field in human rights, you know, if mental health is not made as equal of a priority as education access, as vocational training, then we're not going to get the benefit that we want out of this programming. So that was more of a statement than a question, but just thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, I mean, well, I think that we forget that, like, homelessness, like, the, the act of being homeless can really mess with your mental state. Right. And the same thing with poverty. Like, they go, you know, not everybody who's poor has a mental illness. It's not about that. But like the hardship that you endure because of poverty, because of homelessness, because of these strifes, you know, impact your mental state um, and your mental health. And we need to be paying more attention to vulnerable populations. Completely, completely agree. 100%. Where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? Probably the best is to find me on Twitter. 
You're verified on Twitter. It's pretty impressive. www.ruthreader.com on Twitter, Ruth Reader. And check out her New York Times article. So proud. Thanks. So proud. Well, thanks for coming. (laughs) See you guys next time. Bye. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.